We are preparing to move into the building that we purchased two months ago that we call our ministry center. And so the title of the series is a play on words, and I'll explain why we call it a ministry center rather than a church building in a, in a bit. But we call it uh, our ministry center. And in order to prepare ourselves uh, for moving into that building and being most effective when we do that, we need to focus our attention, center our attention on the issue of ministry. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to spend some time doing that, preparing ourselves for moving into our ministry center so that we can hit the ground running, as it were, and be most effective in the ministry that God has for us in that uh, new, new location. So we started this series last week. And if you have your Bibles, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to look at several passages together. But 1 Timothy 3, and last week we began by looking at the centrality of the church in God's work. So as we prepare to move to this new location, one of the things that we need to be completely convinced of is that the work that is being done through the agency of churches like ours, local assemblies of people committed to Jesus Christ and carrying out his work in his world, that that is God's program, that that is the means through which God is carrying out his work. And so last week, I sought to show the centrality of the church to the work of God. And we saw 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, where Paul, who wrote this, says to Timothy, to whom he wrote it, although I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, we saw last week that you have these, these titles in verse 15 given to the church. It's the church of the living God. And prior to that, it's God's household or it's God's family. God's family. It's the church that belongs to the true and living God. It is His, and it is called to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Lofty titles given to whatever this thing is, uh, the church. And so, what is that church, and how does our church fit into the description that's given there? Well, I noted last week that the Greek word that's translated church in your New Testament is ekklesia. And so when it says the church of the living God in verse 15, it's the ecclesia of the living God. And that word is used 119 times in your New Testament. And it's used a couple of different ways. One of the ways in which ecclesia is used is to describe all believers of all time everywhere. So all of those who are the ecclesia, that word means called out ones, all of those who have been called out of the world and to God through Jesus Christ are part of the church. And that's called the universal church. So it's the church in God's world wherever, thus the name universal. But then the most prominent way in which it's used, in fact, 99 times ecclesia is used, of the local church. And local means, as opposed to universal, just all those who are called out of the world and to God, it is those who are, yes, part of that universal church, but are called together in assembly in a particular location, thus the word local church. So local doesn't mean necessarily close to your house, 
like we might say I go to the local grocery store, meaning it's close. It usually is, it may be, but it's, it's that it's localized. It's in a particular geographic location as opposed to universal. And the question then is, which way is that being used? In 1 Timothy 3.15, and we saw that given the context that goes all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul, who wrote it, says, I urge then that prayers and intercessions be made for all men, for kings and for those who are in authority. And then goes on later in chapter 2 to talk about the role of women in worship. And then you come to chapter 3, and it begins by saying, if anyone desires the office of an overseer or a, a pastor, it's a synonym for that, uh, an overseer or a pastor, he desires a good work. Now, an overseer must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, and goes on to give the qualifications for being a pastor all the way through verse 7 of chapter 3. Verse 8, deacons likewise, and it gives qualifications for deacons. And then you come to verse 11, and it's likewise their wives, the deacons' wives, have qualifications. Then it comes back to deacons in verse 12. And then you come full circle to verse 14, where we started. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions. Instructions about prayers when you gather together for worship. Instructions about the role of women in the assembly. Instructions about the qualifications for those who would lead in the assembly. Pastors and deacons and their wives. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to behave, ought to conduct themselves in God's family the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, what's that talking about? The universal church or the local church? It's clearly the realm in which worship takes place and where roles of men and women are an issue and where qualifications for leadership need to be taken into consideration. This is all in the context of the local assembly and the work that God has called it to do. Now, think about that, dear friends. God has so centered his work on the church that he calls people out of the world and to himself in Jesus, Jesus Christ and then gathers them together in assemblies in particular locations in order to carry out his work. And he calls those churches his family. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so as we start to think about ministry in a new location and being most effective, the first thing we need to understand is that this church and churches like it that are committed to the gospel of Jesus and to his word are that description in chapter 3 and verse 15. God's family. Church of the living God. Pillar and foundation of the truth. From God's standpoint, church is serious stuff, isn't it? It's not ancillary. It's not... You know, I'm good with Jesus, but I just don't like the church, which is very popular today. God says, no, I like the church. I, I made it. It's my idea. It's my family. It's my church. I've given it very important work to do. It's not optional. And so that notion, very popular in individualistic America and amongst many individualistic American Christians is completely antithetical to Scripture. And beyond that last week, we won't review it because it was our whole time, but we saw, and I encourage you to listen to the recording if you weren't able to be here. We have all those on our website. But we saw that beginning with the mission that Jesus gave to his first followers before he ascended back to the fa Father. The beginning with that uh, and, and, and its 
inception in Acts chapter 2 on something called the day of Pentecost. The mission began and the church started at exactly the same time. And we documented through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts that the mission and the local church go forward together. And the mission does not go forward apart from the church, and the church is to always be centered upon that mission for which it was formed. So the centrality of the church, first. If we're going to center on ministry, we need to understand that this church and gospel preaching, Bible-believing churches like it are central to God's plan in the carrying out of His work in His world, okay? Now, what I want us to see today is there's not only the centrality of the church, but there's the beauty of the church. You see, you can buy intellectually what I said last week and what I just said. Okay, fine. The church is central. But I'm still looking for one that I can stand because I've been in a bunch of them. And they're all a big fat mess. And they all have trouble. And so, you know, I know it's central. And as soon as I find one that's even half decent, I'll commit myself to it. But in the meantime, church is a mess. Now, there are a lot of people who fit into the category I'm talking about. Who just say, you know what, I don't need that garbage. I don't need all the hassles with these people. I mean, these people got problems. These people got issues. I mean, I've heard about sinners, but then I went there and like met them. So there's, there's problems because there's people, and that'll always be the case. And there's problems because there's sin, and that will always be the case. And because there's sin, there will always be stuff like power plays, which have no place in God's church, but nonetheless happen because of, of sin. And so many of us have seen that, those, sorts of, those sorts of things. And our reaction to it is an understandable one, but a wrong one nonetheless. The reaction is often to say, well, I'm just going to check out a church then. God doesn't give that option. God, God has not said that His church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, His family, is going to be perfect this side of heaven. He has not said that. In fact, it never will be. But nevertheless, it is His church. And there's a beauty to that church despite the difficulties that often attend working with people that comprise the church. And I want us to see that. Because it's one thing to see the centrality, but to miss the beauty of the church. And we need to be convinced of both of those. Yes, it's the institution through which God is carrying out His work, and also it's a beautiful thing as well, even with all of its difficulties. And so how can we, how can we see that? It's beautiful because, first of all, it's not, it's not a building. It's not just an organization. And this gets to why we call the facility a ministry center. There's nothing wrong with the word church. And most of us use that kind of language. And when we have our own building, we will say we're meeting at the church. But the truth is, the church is never used in that way in the Bible. It's never used of a physical building. And yet many of us have grown up thinking that the church is the building. And so when we think about church and we think about it being beautiful, well, you know, the one I was in when I was a kid was really run down. It was a storefront. It wasn't so beautiful. Well, that's not the church. 
When I was a kid, we actually met in a storefront in, on uh, Werner, near Clark, in Detroit. And it was ugly. And I don't know what crawled around in that building on the days we were not there. But in the years since, I've wondered. The building was not beautiful. And when I talk about the beauty of the church then, I'm not talking about the beauty of the building. I'm talking about the the beauty of God's work in what really comprises the building. Now, how do we know it's not a building? Ephesians chapter 5. And notice what Ephesians chapter 5 says about this thing called the church. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now you look at the way the word church is used there twice, that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. In verse 27, to present present her to himself as a radiant church. So Christ loved the church, and he's presenting her to himself as a radiant church. Now, think about if you substituted building for church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the building and gave himself up for it. To present it to himself as a radiant building. Absurd, right? And yet, this is the way we think about the church. We think about it as being a building, as brick and and mortar. And clearly, from passages like Ephesians 5, Jesus didn't die for any building. Jesus died. Jesus died for people. And the church is the called out ones. And so the ecclesia are those that people that have been called out of the world and to God through Jesus. So the church then is people, not brick and mortar, not a building. Now again, I understand why we use the word church to talk about the building. And I'm sure I will slip into that when we move into our building, and you will, and nobody will be slapping your hand, and there won't be any of that. But I do want to emphasize this because it's so easy to get lost in it and to think that the church is the building. And when you start to to identify the church that way, It is the reason that we begin to degenerate into ugly views of the church. I mean, really, this is it? Fixing the roof? You know, repairing the windows? Cleaning the carpet? That's it? That's that's what Jesus died for? This is what you're telling me I'm supposed to be giving my life to? And so we need to be clear that it's not the building. But it is a place where the church meets. And thus the title, Ministry Center. A center where ministry, and the word ministry in the New Testament is service, where service takes place. Service to God, service to each other. A training center where people are taught to serve more effectively God and others. And so the idea of a service center or a ministry center rather than a church. So it's beautiful Because it's not a building. It's more than that. 
And it's beautiful, secondly, because of whose it is. Christ loved the church. And I want you to notice back in Ephesians 5, in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And verse 24 says that the church submits to Christ. So whose is it? Whose are these called out people that are the ecclesia, the church? They are Christ. He's the head of those people. And those people submit, place themselves under his headship. So it's beautiful because of whose it is. It's Jesus' church. It's not our church. It's certainly not Ken's church. Just like we use the word church loosely, we say things like, well, I go to Ken Brown's church. And again, we understand that. That's the church that he pastors. But we need to be careful. There's no such thing as Ken Brown's church or anybody else's. It's Jesus' church. And he says that in Matthew 16. Turn back to Matthew 16, if you would. Verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now Jesus says here in a prediction to his first followers about what's going to take place in just, uh, just a few weeks that he is, going to, he is going to die and that on the basis of his death, he is going to begin to build his church. In fact, he's setting them up for this prediction that he gives in verse 21. Take a look down in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Peter, who he just said, you know, thou art Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, such a harsh response. But the reason is Jesus is saying, this is the very mission for which I came. As a matter of fact, that church I was talking about doesn't get built unless I die. So I've come for the mission to die for my people, and I'm going to form those people into this thing called the church. And you, Peter, are going to be used as an instrument in that. But through all of that, and through all of those he's going to use, including Peter, as he does when the church starts on Acts 2, who stands up to preach? Peter. But in all of that, Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 16, I will build whose church? It's mine, and I will build it. Now, as we think about centering on ministry, 
we think about the beauty of the church, we think about the fact that it is the people for whom Jesus died. He gave himself up and he is preparing those people to be a radiant bride to present to himself. We always need to bear in mind that it is Jesus' church and, and Jesus builds it, we don't. Jesus builds his church. He uses us as instruments, but he builds his church. Now, if you forget that, if I forget that, guess what we're prone to? We'll take it upon ourselves to build the church. We'll take it upon ourselves to figure out ways that we need for the church to get bigger. We've got to build this church. And many a church has succumbed to compromise because they've forgotten that Jesus builds his church. And he uses us, as I say, as instruments. But he tells us to use the tools that he provides in order for him to build his church. Now, when we do this, not everybody is going to fall over themselves loving what we have to say. Did you all know that? Listen, it's a Jesus church, and Jesus was crucified. If the Lord of the church was crucified, What makes any of us think it will be a cakewalk for us? It's his church. And if we're going to to speak his word into a, a world that killed him, then do not expect that when we go into Trenton, everybody's going to be saying, I am so happy that there's a church here who tells me that I'm a sinner and I'm going to go to hell unless I come to Jesus. bunch of Bible thumpers, right? So lose the idea that that we are going to build the church because people are just going to fall in love with us because when you do that, friends, you are very susceptible to compromise. Let me show you. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to the right, almost to the end. First Peter. And notice what Peter says about the church. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, just stop there. You know, Jesus was rejected, but precious to God the Father. And like that, verse 5, Like living stones, you are being built into a spiritual house. Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now get verse 7 carefully. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those, now let me just stop there. 
Guys, have you ever caught how many times the Bible does this? There's you who believe, and there's everybody else. And by the way, everybody else is in the majority. Always has been, always will be. It's to you who believe that this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Well, there's a verse you ought to just skip, Pastor. But we don't skip nothing. So here's what the Bible teaches throughout, and here's what Peter's telling us. Listen, everybody comes into this world hating God, rejecting God. Everybody comes into this world that way. And unless God intervenes in His grace, which He owes to nobody, But in his grace, he does. Unless he intervenes, everybody is destined for the end of that rejection. But thanks be to God, he intervenes. And that's why the next verse then says, But you are a chosen people and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you. Church, the called out ones. He called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, dear friends, I urge you, verse 11, as aliens and strangers in the world. Do you all see that, aliens and strangers? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so the church, the church is beautiful because of whose it is. And it is Christ's. It is his exclusively. Not mine, not yours, not anybody else's. But that has implications for us then as we move forward. If it's Jesus' church and he's the one who builds it, And the only way that anybody loves it and becomes a part of it is if he does a work in their heart. Then we've got to lose the idea that we've got to help God out by modifying his message to make it more palatable for people who are going to reject it anyway. And yet that's what our churches are doing. And I'm letting you all know if there was ever any question about that, (laughs) then I'm not going there. By God's grace. We will, by God's grace, reach people in Trenton and beyond. God has called us to do that. We're going to do our very best to show Jesus to our community. But in showing Jesus to our community, we will say everything that Jesus said as clearly as we can and as lovingly as we can. And then watch Jesus build his church. It's beautiful because it's his, and because it's his, no compromise. He builds it. Acts chapter 18. Verse 
Paul, who has just visited Athens in chapter 17. He's had an encounter with Athenian philosophers. And he's now told by the Lord to go to another city in Corinth. In verse 9 of Acts 18, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because Here's why. (laughs) Because I have many people in this city. Now, the Lord says to him, I have many people in this city. Nobody knows who those people are yet. I, the Lord, know who they are, but you, Paul, don't. So you've got people who come into the world rejecting God. And if, they, and if God does not intervene, that's the path that all people will go on. But here's the good news. God intervenes. And God has people. Charles Spurgeon, you all know him? Called the Prince of Preachers. He believed all this stuff that I'm saying because we read the same book. And he was asked one time, well, if you believe that, why don't you just preach to the people that God has chosen? And Spurgeon said, if you can point them out to me, I'll do that. We have no idea. So we preach the gospel to everybody. And God says, I have people in this city. And you know how you'll get to know who those people are? I already know who they are. God already knows. But you know how you'll get to know? You'll preach the gospel and they'll respond to it. And when they respond to it, they show themselves to be that royal priesthood, that chosen people. The called out ones. And that's the means by which God, Jesus, builds his church. So it's beautiful because of whose it is. It belongs to Christ. It's not mine, it's not yours. And, we, and we, it is built by him through his word and his gospel. Secondly, it's beautiful because of its composition. It's beautiful because of its ownership, whose it is, but it's beautiful because of who it's composed of. Now, of whom is the church composed? Well, it's composed of redeemed people who are trophies of God's grace. People who don't deserve, and that's by definition what grace is, undeserved. So people who don't deserve God's grace, who have been called out of the world and to himself, who are trophies of the grace of God from all walks of life and all kinds of struggles and all kinds of difficulties. But God calls every one of them out of the world and to himself and to the same place, to the foot of the cross of Jesus. If you bring a group of people together like that, who really believe that, who really know that, and live that way, and it's a beautiful thing. A redeemed people. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. We went through Ephesians in our last series before the current series in James. Many of you were with us for that. But in Ephesians 1 through 3, it is all about, those three chapters are all about God's grand design to create a people for himself in this thing called the church. And he describes there his plan going back to eternity past. And he chose you, chapter 1 and verse 4, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. 
It says that at a point in time, His Holy Spirit moved on us when we heard the gospel message and having believed as we had read in our worship service today, He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on to tell us that that happened despite the fact that chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. For it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8 of chapter 2. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. For we are God's workmanship. Greek word is poema. We are God's poema, his poem, his craftsmanship, his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. The church is beautiful because it's this redeemed people from all different backgrounds and all kinds of struggles who have all been called by God to be his poem, his work of art, his tapestry, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to, to do. It's a redeemed people, and it's also, the Bible presents, the church is a gifted people. The composition of the church makes it beautiful because it's comprised of these redeemed people, all walks of life, all backgrounds. A redeemed people, but also a gifted people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about the diversity of the body and the gifts that God has given through His Spirit to each one of us in order to build one another up in Christ's likeness and together to use those gifts to carry out His work, to spread His fame in His world. And so that giftedness is spoken of especially in four passages. In Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. In each of those, this, this gifting that God has given to His church and each one in the church to participate in the carrying out of His work is listed. And so the church is not just central to God's program, it's beautiful because it belongs to Christ and Christ is its head and it's composed of redeemed people and gifted people. And here's a third reason that's beautiful. Because the church is, as one author has said, the hope of the world. Yikes. Jesus is the hope of the world. It's true. But do you all remember last week when we saw that Jesus gave his final instructions to his first followers and he said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you? And I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And then you come to the book of Acts. Jesus ascends back to the Father. You come to the book of Acts. And Luke starts out in the book of Acts. And he recounts that Jesus gave these follow, final instructions. And he says that in the gospel that I wrote that describes that, I wrote of all, this is a quote, all that Jesus began to do and teach. That he began to do and teach. And what does that imply? That Jesus is still working. But guess who he's working through now? These people that he's assigned this mission to now. 
that's carried out through this thing called the church that started then in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And they move forward together. And so the church is the hope of the world. Yes, of course, it's God. It's Jesus who's ultimately the hope of the world. But He has assigned the work of carrying out His message to His world to us in the church. And so the church is beautiful because it is the hope of the world. And that's why, friends, it is so necessary for us who are part of His church to understand its significance, to understand the absolutely central role it plays in God's program, to understand the grace that's been manifest in the church by bringing a redeemed people from all backgrounds together and gifting them to carry out His work all uniquely and to see that God has set us up as that light on the hill to carry out His work. It is, it is so vitally, vitally important that that this church, which is the hope of the world, be healthy and vibrant. This is why you guys that have been with us for any length of time have heard me warn multiple times about the need for the unity of the church, the need for us to continue to grow spiritually, individually, and as a church. Because the health of the church affects the mission of God. And to the extent that the church is unhealthy, the mission of God is harmed. So friend, as you participate in God's church, you think about that. You think about what's at stake. Jesus is assigned to the church to carry out His work. It is the hope of the world. And, and I have called our church an epicenter church. You guys have heard me say that. And those of you that have and forgot, I'll say it again. Those of you that haven't, I'll inform you. But our church, we desire to be an epicenter church. And the idea there is this, to be a church through which the gospel rings out into the regions beyond. The church at Thessalonica in your New Testament is said to have been a church where the gospel rang out and your reputation for being a, a gospel-preaching center is known throughout the regions beyond, says Paul, of that church in Thessalonica. And you have example churches like in Jerusalem and in Antioch, in the book of Acts, that were used by God to plant other churches to see His work go forward by the advance of His church and therefore the advance of His mission. So the church is, is beautiful in that it's the hope of the world and its health results in its growth and that growth allows it to be an epicenter church who ripples out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? And then lastly, it's beautiful because it's the means by which people become like Christ. Take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is our theme verse for our church. has been since the very beginning. Colossians 1, verse 28. We proclaim Him. I just stop there. If we ever 
if we ever, ever stop proclaiming him, have a meeting, get new leadership, find a church that proclaims him, but we proclaim Jesus. And we proclaim him admonishing and teaching. Now, the admonishing, that word admonish is nuthateo. Some of you are familiar with that. It's variously translated in your New Testament, but it's often translated warn, warning and teaching. So see, it's not just the teaching. It's not just, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's warning people, admonishing people. There's a judgment to come. And God's judgment has been rendered on Jesus on your behalf, but you must enter the safety of the ark that is Jesus. Judgment is coming. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, but here's why. Here's our goal. So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That word perfect, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our goal as a church is to preach Jesus to everyone that we can meet, everyone that, that we can make contact with, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom so that we may present all of them, we, we desire to present all of them as mature in Jesus, like Jesus. Now that's the end, and that's what we want to do. And I'll finish up in two minutes. That's the end, that's the goal. But it has always been the desire of our church to begin with the end in mind. So look at what it is we want to accomplish. Look at what it is what God wants us to accomplish. Present everyone mature in Christ. And then back off from that and say, how do we get from here to there? And so what I want to share with you beginning next week is a, is, is a program for us to disciple people. Remember Jesus said, make disciples of everyone. For us to disciple people wherever they are, wherever they come from, to help them grow in Jesus, to become more like Jesus. That's a, that's a comprehensive, that is, a, that, that is a, a ministry, that is a process, that is multifaceted. Because people come from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of baggage and all kinds of difficulties. And if we're going to make disciples of them and present them mature in Christ, then there's much ministry to be had for us as we go to our ministry center. And so the church is central to God's program. But it's not just central, and yeah, I get that. It's, it's beautiful as well. It belongs to Jesus. It's composed of redeemed and gifted people. It's the hope of the world. It is the means by which people are made Christ-like through the discipleship process. And next week, I'd like to describe for you this comprehensive discipleship process to get people from where they are, wherever they are, to becoming like our Lord. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for letting me be in the church, part of those who are the redeemed. I don't deserve this. I did nothing to obtain it. It is all because of your mercy and grace that I am in him and that I am part of his called out ones. And the same is true for everyone here who has come to you through Jesus. We've been called out of the world and to yourself because of your mercy. 
And we've been called out for your purposes, to bring glory to your name, to honor you with our lips and our lives as we grow into Christ-likeness and carry out the mission of spreading your fame in your world. And so, Lord, help me to see that as the privilege, the wonder that it is. Help my brothers and sisters to see that anew, that it is a, the grandest, the most marvelous privilege for us who do not deserve it to be part of this beautiful thing called the church. And, Lord, help us to focus then our attention in the weeks ahead to how we can do that, how we can use the principles that you have given us in your word to make disciples of all of the people in this area that you bring and allow us to be in contact with and to be an epicenter church so that that happens in the regions beyond. Oh, Lord, help us to to see the, the kinds of things that you have done but that you can do and intend to do in the future. And may there be an enthusiasm about that among us, that you have counted us privileged to be able to participate in this and to experience the joys of seeing it happen, seeing people called out of darkness into light whom we have not even met, who you know and we are yet to identify through the gospel. Go with us this week, Lord, and help us to rejoice in the fact that we are the redeemed, gifted people of your church. And help us next week to be able to see very clearly how we can carry out your work in this part of your world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.